guys. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I look forward to having this conversation with everyone. So welcome to Gen Z's Digital Decalogue's live taping at the Y for Y I Summit in our last session today. Um, today, we're going to be talking with Larissa May. Um, Lars is a grassroots community pioneer who was named Business Insider's Rising Star. She is the executive director and founder of Hashtag Half the Story, which is a movement rooted in education advocacy. She also founded the Global Day of Unplugging, and she harnesses the power of bringing together the masses to find, solve, and soothe the issues of young people living in a digital world. And I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Hello, Lars. How are you doing today? Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. I love Look Up. I love meeting new people, and I always am grateful to have the opportunity to share more about our work and my story. Thank you so much, Lars, for that intro. So kind of how we usually begin our sessions is a little bit of a rapid fire. Um, just one or two questions that I think might get our brain going. Um, so the first little icebreaker is what animal is most similar to your personality and why? Definitely a pug because, and this is Poncho, my pug, uh, because they're quirky, they're they're funny, they're like little clown aliens, and I would say I'm definitely a quirky person. And sometimes people are like, "What planet are you from?" And I, when I'm going 100 miles an hour, I'll like run in a million circles and do what I need to do. But when I'm tired, I'll just fall asleep in any place, and that's very pug like. I love that. No, yeah. And I think um, pugs are probably my favorite breed of dogs, um, but I'm also biased to labs because I have one. Um, yes. But yeah, awesome. If I were an animal, I'd probably pick up a unicorn. And I say this at every icebreaker event, just because I just really like them. And yeah, I think they're pretty cool. I love unicorns. Um, yeah. <laughs> like when I was growing up, I used to have unicorns on the cover of every one of my binders. It was great. Um, and then the second icebreaker is, if you could eliminate one food so no one could eat it ever again, what would you destroy? Hmm. Yep. Anchovies. Anchovies? Nice. I love how quickly you thought of that. I'm not going to lie. One came up to me immediately, and I'm going to get a lot of hate for this one, but nachos. I'm not a nachos person. <laughs> oh, I love nachos. That's fair. It was a Cubs game, and it did not go well. Yeah, that's a different type of cheese. That's like the fake that's cheese fair. that you don't know where it was produced in the world. Uh, probably zero mm percent -hmm. of it is actually edible. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Awesome. Well, it was great to get to know you a little bit before we get into the meat of what we're going to talk about today. Um, I think to kick things off, I'd, I'd love for maybe you to share with our audience today what half the story is. So Half the Story is a nonprofit on a mission to empower the next generation's relationship with technology. We have a vision to make digital wellness accessible to everyone, and we really do that through three key pillars of our organization, community and storytelling, education, and advocacy. Awesome. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got into Half the Story, how you kind of came up with the idea for it, and how you got into digital well-being as a whole. Well, believe it or not, Half the Story started seven years ago from about this time. So it's very hard to believe that I've actually been working on this for seven years. Um, and I started it because of my own experience. I always say that sometimes 
the the brightest ideas come from our darkest nights and half the story is no exception to that rule. I was a college student. This was far before people were even talking about mental health. There was still a lot of stigma around it, very little resources. And I was dealing with depression, really, really serious depression. And while I was dealing with depression, I was also getting introduced to the digital world of social media and was trying to even get to know myself. And Social media was such a positive place in a lot of ways because it offered an opportunity for creative expression. It allowed me to start a blog and actually build revenue streams while I was still a student. But on the flip side, social media was the shield between me and the world and me and my emotions. And I really used it as a way to numb and make it through the days. And that was really my only friend for a while. It was me in my room behind my screen. Until it got to a point where I literally had to get dragged across my college campus by my RA to get emergency psychiatric support because of what I was dealing with. And I was experiencing suicidal ideation. I wasn't going to class. My roommate actually moved out of my dorm room because I was just in such a bad place. And when I got on the other side... I looked at all of the things that they asked me about and the treatment that they gave me from antidepressants, from to therapy, to physical wellness, all things which are a part of our our mental health puzzle. But I found it really fascinating that they didn't ask me about the drug that was in my pocket, which was my social media and my cell phone. And that didn't go away, even as I was experiencing, you know, going through all these other treatments and remedies to help bring me back to balance. And it caused me to really step back and look at the big question, uh, look at this big question of what role does technology and social media play in our emotional well-being? And I felt that when it was good, it was great. It was like a dopamine rush and a hit. And when it was bad, it was like, you know, someone making funny of you and that like feeling where your stomach sinks. And So I spent my life trying to figure out first, what role does technology play in other people's young life? So I basically came up with this idea that social media was only half the story, printed out a bunch of half the story stickers and handed them out to kids around campus and started a movement of young people storytelling and sharing other sides of their life that you wouldn't see on social media. And that was where the story began. And now we've been very lucky to be at the forefront and the pioneers of this movement alongside so many others, including Look Up, uh, to make a difference on on the global stage and to really support youth, but also hold companies accountable for the tools that they're creating. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's incredible how you kind of used your personal experience to also create an impact in the community around this real problem that deeply affected you. Yeah. And so you mentioned that half the story has a couple of pillars in what you guys do, ranging from education to advocacy. Um, And kind of related to that, I would love to ask you about a specific program that you have. I believe it's Social Media U, and it's a course and a program available to educate people. I'd love to hear about that. Yes. So within the seven-year journey, we actually became a nonprofit in 2018, and that was The point that we decided that we wanted to move and expand into something greater than a grassroots storytelling movement. And 
at the beginning of this, actually how I funded half the story was with, I would book myself for speaking engagements at the age of 21 at different places so that I could actually have money to pay for the organization until I realized that obviously wasn't sustainable. And the, although it wasn't sustainable to fund it through speaking at schools, I did get to do research while going to these schools and ask questions and you know, do a lot of surveys. And I realized, you know, we educate kids about physical wellness, nutrition, sex ed, yet they have virtually nothing in place where the average American teen is spending eight hours a day, which equates to 30 years of your life behind a screen. And so I had this light bulb moment realizing I love storytelling. I love experiential learning. I've come from a theatrical background and a marketing background. How can we bring together education and storytelling and do this in a modern way within education institutions? So what we did is we actually built a micro intervention called Social Media You, which is research backed. We worked with the Greater Good Lab at Berkeley and uh, PhDs at Vanderbilt, which has one of the top education institutions in the United States to take intervention back research and actually translate that into content and experiences that actually support youth. And it, that ultimately the success is defined as a number of different blended scales that we've that we've been able to source. Um, looking at one, emotional health and digital habits, which is really how we define digital well-being. And so we're working with different school districts, public school districts, independent schools, and we have a couple of different models. So one is that we will train seniors in high school to implement this for freshmen in high school. The other is that we bring in 20-somethings that are pursuing their degrees in psychiatry or psychology to implement this programming. And then in some rural places, just given the resources, we'll train the educators to implement this on our behalf. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, I think it's really cool that you have education as such an important component of what you're working on um, and kind of reaching out to schools and people in also rural areas. I think it's relevant across the country, especially. I feel like there's a lot of the places where um, different movements get implemented are pretty niche. And I love how you guys expand to a lot of different areas and a lot of different groups of people. Well, I really appreciate that. And I, and I think that when it comes to this work and, and we think about where can we make the most amount of impact, which we get a lot of questions about, mind you, of why are you so focused on this, et cetera, et cetera. I think like anything, knowledge is power and I believe, although this movement was born on a college campus, where we can make the most amount of impact is really in the adolescent and pre-adolescent years. So we're really focused on both middle school and high school. And you know, one other thing that I, I just want to share that I think also ties into this idea of making digital wellness accessible to all, um, there's been a lot of conversation and bills and money right now around actually making internet access available to everyone and, and making, um, whether it be lower prices or free internet, which a lot of different organizations and government entities are working on. And one thing that we really believe in at Half the Story is that we can't look at digital equity without looking at digital well-being as a pillar of digital equity. So 
we want to be able to also serve communities who might be experiencing the internet for the first time as they're the ones that have the least amount of mental health resources already within those institutions and environments and really being able to combine that within the lens of technology, which is really the first way in. Like it's so much easier to have a conversation about emotions and screen time than it is to jump right to depression. And so we really see this as the window or the door to the much larger conversation about mental health. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point. And I think as you mentioned, like when you kind of introduce the idea, um, it's easier to go in from like a smaller scale lens in terms of how you explain the problem. And I think especially when you're when you're grouping that in with digital equity, when you're introducing these platforms to people, introducing it to them in a way where it's also conducive to digital well-being will reduce the mitigation that you might need to do later. It's kind of like you you understand the problems that are happening already as you're going in, which I think is a wonderful method to, to, talk, to think about it as. Well, I really appreciate it. And I think for us, uh, we've actually seen a lot of interest within STEM labs that we're starting to partner with, because to me, in an ideal scenario, if you look at digital equity, the, the steps would be give kids access give them technology that they can use, give them access to STEM programming so that they can level up their careers and their skill sets and give them access to digital well-being. And I think if we're able to think about those things and kind of cross-collaborate as partners and entities, then I'm hopeful that we can make a big difference um, in the communities that need this more than ever. Yeah, and kind of jumping off of that, um, I know you mentioned earlier how at the beginning of your journey with mental health and with digital well-being, you noticed that there was kind of a stigma against mental health. And do you find um, that today it's a little bit different in the mental health space, especially related to digital well-being? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's night and day. I, I mean, it is absolutely wild just how the conversation has shifted. I remember when I first shared my story um, oh man, someone asked a great question, which I will answer in a minute. Um, <laughs> but anyways, um, when I start, when I shared my story initially, I mean, to be honest, my parents were pretty mortified. They're like, how are you ever going to get a job? Little did they know I was never going to probably have a job because I was an entrepreneur. Uh, but people were really afraid. It was like walking on eggshells a little bit. And especially as they started telling that story in media, which was really where we got a lot of our initial traction. But Unfortunately, as more suicides started to happen on college campuses and high school, the the story kept kept going. And unfortunately, the unfortunate part is that we're facing a mental health crisis amongst youth. But the fortunate part is that we as a society are starting to actually address this because we can't turn our heads when we're losing when suicide is one of the top three causes of death for adolescents in America. So. Right. Now, now I believe that workplaces and schools and different systems, I mean, even just looking in California, uh, Newsom is, is of course, commit, committed to making a difference in the lives of children here, but it's so much bigger than that. And it requires what I say at half the story is our tops down and bottoms up approach. We have to make a difference at the absolute top down to hold people accountable. And we have to be at the bottom up to continue to fuel that fire for advocacy and change. So um okay so instagram questions someone asked um as you've journeyed through leading this movement did you ever feel like stopping and why and what keeps you going so i'm really glad that someone asked that because i'm just gonna be completely honest i don't think that people are 
very transparent about how hard it is to be a founder, especially a young founder in the nonprofit space. So when I started Half the Story, I was 21 years old and our operating budget was whatever money I could get in speaking engagements plus a $500 grant that I got at school. So I was very grassroots, even very, very grassroots. And I had to, at one point, I I wound up actually starting to build direct-to-consumer for-profit companies. So I was basically working like 80 hours a week, um, trying to make money so that I could then keep this thing alive. And there have been so many triumphs, but also tribulations in this journey, my mental health, my physical health, but also just the challenges of going against such a big system and trying to actually make change in it. And Quite honestly, there have been so many days where I've wanted to quit, so many, Um, one, because of lack of resources, two, because of just lack of change, and three, just because of the amount of sacrifice that it's taken. But I think the reason that I keep doing this is because there is a difference between a job and a calling. And I realized at a very young age that I would always be a builder and I loved entrepreneurship. But when I went through this experience, it was the most personal one I had in my life and one that I know that hundreds of millions of young people are experiencing and that I need to. It's like this commitment and visceral feeling um, that I need to just get out in the world and, and make a difference because that's the power of storytelling and the power of pain is that you actually have the ability to turn pain into purpose. Uh, I think also what keeps me going is the change. I mean, even meeting Susan and and all the way on, in the Middle East on the other side of the world and, and seeing that there are more people coming into the space, that community makes it so much easier because there are a lot of hard days. And it's nice to not be alone behind a computer doing this <laughs> and to have community. Another person asked, so what element of the global day of unplugging keeps younger generations the most excited and connected? So for us, we look at global, if we we look at the global day of unplugging, if I would describe it this way, almost like half the story's birthday, where we want to celebrate half the story and digital well-being every day of the year. But we look at that as a day for young people in different cities to cultivate and build different experiences, uh, to remind them of the power of unplugging and more so plugging into life. And we actually just started a series called Screen Through Weekends, which we are doing through an accelerator with Eventbrite that actually partners with our favorite creators online to bring them offline in different cities around the world uh, to bring young people together to play, connect, create, try and learn new things while taking care of their mental health. And so we look at that as sort of the you know, the global day of unplugging that we hope to create on a monthly basis, which brings this digital world into the real world. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for also addressing the questions that we had in the chat come in. And I, I think both of them are actually directly related to some of the things I wanted to ask you about. And kind of related to the first question about, you know, your resilience in the movement and keeping keep on going when things were tough. I'd love to also maybe hear a little bit about what you've noticed in terms of the way people view digital well-being, in terms of the impact that some of these organizations and um, your organization is is making. And so um, my question was kind of related to how do people view digital well-being? Some of the research that you've done, the people that you've thought, talked to, do they consider it a problem? Do they identify that as a pinpoint? 
So I think the biggest misconception about digital well-being is that it's just about screen time. And that is really, when I think about our North Stars at Half the Story, there's three. One, to empower the next generation through the lens of positivity and knowledge to help them thrive and take back control. The second is to make digital wellness accessible to all. And the third is to actually reduce the shame around technology and being on your phone uh, because it isn't just about digital habits and really starting with the root of emotional health. And so that's why we are so focused on bridging the gap between SEL, different emotional learning skills and tech habits, and actually getting to the root of that first, because if you can't connect with your own emotions, it's really hard to even address and come down to earth and understand the role that technology plays in them. So that's one. I think the second thing is that there's actually an assumption that all technology is created equal and that all screen time is created equal. And one of the big things and mantras for us when we think about our core, really our core beliefs is that not all screen time is created equal. And we cannot tell youth or the next generation or you know, little kids that that is true because it's not. If you have an intention and you're consuming actively, whether it's to create, consume, do Nike Run Club, learn agility skills for a, a sport that you're playing to get better, those are positive uses of technology. If you're using technology mindlessly, falling into rabbit holes, nine times out of 10, you're going to leave that feeling not so great about yourself. But secondly, it's very passive and can have negative impact on your overall health. Yeah, I think that's definitely a really interesting way to look at it. And I, I think it's also related to what we emphasize here at Look Up. There is tech for good, and then there's the negative effects of technology. And it's important to acknowledge that there's both. And having a healthy relationship with technology isn't cutting off use or, you know, completely digitizing de-digitizing yourself if that's a word um but yeah and i think there's also a really interesting thing to explore there with the intersection between positive and negative experiences say on a singular platform um and it's going to sound weird that i'm using this as an example but for me i think one of those sources is linkedin um linkedin is, is something that i use to connect with other people and to network and to broaden my professional experience but at the same time when you go on there and you've, you've seen the 70th person of the day get an internship at Google, it can just be like, maybe I'm not doing enough. And so I think there are ways and platforms in which kind of the good tech can also have negative impacts and effects. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yes. I mean, I don't necessarily think that LinkedIn is all good, depending on where you're coming at it from. I think for young people, one of the things that we've seen is that especially for young people that are in highly academic environments, technology has actually created even so much more pressure for performance and succeeding. When in reality, not everyone and their brother is getting a job at Google, maybe everyone and their brother in your very tiny bubble, which is you know a very small percent of the intellectual world is doing that. And social media has a way of keeping us within our, our ecosystems and our eco chambers in a way that can actually make us feel less than. So I think one of the most important things is to engage and follow and, and do things that actually help break through that algorithm and break through the things that it is delivering you. It's funny you bring up LinkedIn because that's actually probably my biggest sticky app, which is what we call you know the thing that keeps us hooked because 
I'm hiring on there. Like right now I'm, I'm getting job applications for a new role at half the story every hour. And I'm like, oh, I want to see who's applying. It's the same as someone liking your Instagram. So, you know, I, I actually deleted LinkedIn from my phone for that purpose because I get very excited about <laughs> all the things that are happening. And it's so important to be able to draw a line between you and your business. I think when you're an entrepreneur, it's not like you come home from work and you're not an entrepreneur anymore. Um, when you're an entrepreneur, it's a way of life. So you really have to figure out how to build harmony. I, I don't really believe in the word balance, but I believe in harmony. I believe in tech life harmony, work life harmony. And that's always an, an ongoing an ongoing journey. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear, um, especially with LinkedIn. I feel like for me, that's also my like pinpoint that turns me over sometimes. Um, and kind of related to that, right now, recently, like as more people are getting involved within the digital well-being space and due to a lot of the recent advocacy efforts, um, more people are recognizing it as a problem. And as a result, there have been new forms of social media that have been used to minimize some of the traditionally negatively looked upon components, if that makes sense. And I think one example is Be Real. Um, yes. So for those of you who don't know, Be Real is an app where kind of randomly uh, at a random point in the day, it'll ask you to take a picture of yourself, whatever you're doing. There's no filters, there's no likes, um, there's no other really functions that are commonly associated with um, Instagram or other social media platforms. And essentially it's trying to create a social media that's not as curated, as not as like unrepresentative of your daily life. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on platforms like that. I, I have a... I have 20,000 words to say about that. No. Um, so first and foremost, I think the intention behind Be Real is, is good. And I think a lot of companies and technologies that are created, oftentimes we create things and then the world, it's like a snowball. It just starts to roll and more and, pe more and people, more people get involved. And as a tech company, you have a responsibility to make sure that your intention and your technology and design are aligned. I think be real. So there's a couple of interesting things about interesting things about be real. So first and foremost, I had some early questions just as an entrepreneur myself in the beginning of you know what is what are their revenue streams? And as of right now, they are not advertising on the platform. They've just been focusing this first year on getting as many users as possible. So we have to acknowledge that at some point something's going to switch, or else this company is not going to make money. So I'm saying like let's see what happens in the next six months because they're gonna need ways to, to fuel their $30 million plus that they raised to create this without really having a business model for return on that investment. So there's that from a business perspective. Now getting into the social and emotional implications of this. So every single day it asks you to take a be real at a certain time and they're bringing you in the platform. It, Be Real itself is still collecting data on photos, on the types of people that are using it. So I. I think it still has a lot of the same problems that other platforms will have, that young people are getting on it, they're getting data, and they're ultimately going to probably have to sell that to make money. But I think one of the biggest things that we've heard from our teens, because we we asked them recently in our teen advisory, was that Be Real asks you to send a photo at a certain time of day. And sometimes looking back at that content, you can actually feel bad about yourself because 
you're not putting your best foot forward. It's like when you're getting up in the morning or, you know, you're always working or doing homework when Be Real is asking you to submit photos. And it can make you feel like your life is actually not that interesting uh, because of the times of the day that it's asking you to submit your photos. And it can sometimes make you feel bad about yourself. I have to be honest, every single one of my Be Reels is me literally like traveling, like in on a bus, in a cab, on an airplane, like getting ready for this. And like, that's not really how I want to measure my life necessarily as, as someone that's just traveling. And I think it's, it's a little bit interesting in that regard. Um, but I think there's a lot of positives. It's just very simple and not very developed from an infrastructure perspective. So we'll see where it takes us. Yeah, and it's interesting that you uh, mentioned like the times of day that you can take one. Um, Be Real also allows you to post a late Be Real. Um, yes. So if you miss it, you can post it later. And a lot of the kids at my college, I go to Georgia Tech um, first yeah. year. Um, and as a freshman, we're all on it. It's just a thing like you meet more people on campus, you get on Be Real. It's a replica of what already exists in that sense. Um, but also, um, because you have to time to take it technically, like if you miss the call for your be real, you can always take it later. And so some people call it be fake. Um, and yes. we wait until we're doing something fun and someone takes it then. I remember yeah, like exactly. last weekend, some of us went to a theme park and be real went off like that morning, but we weren't at the theme park yet. So everyone just waited until we got to the theme park to take the be real, which I thought was like, besides the whole point of the app in the first place. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the whole moral, that's the whole moral of the story is like, it, it's still not removing, it's still not removing, removing that aspect of social media. So we'll see where the story unfolds, but I find it interesting that you've had that experience as well. And that might be something that I'll have to talk about on my social media. I actually use social media usually to analyze trends or news or things that's happening on my own personal platform. So this would be a fun at living like Lars. This would be a fun one to strike a conversation about. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, it was something that you discussed and talked about within your teen advisory council. I would love to hear a little bit more about that program. Yeah. So for us, we have, a teen advisory board that we work with, that we've been working with for a couple of years that really has been with us at every step of our programming. And we actually run our teen advisory board through as, as a research study. So our head of insights on our team conducts focus groups. So it's not just like meetups once a month. We actually are conducting focus groups and research so that we can actually publish white papers over ideally at the end of the year on a number of different topics with our teens that is IRB certified. So ultimately that means that we're following all the procedures and protocols and have uh, the, have the uh, consent from parents in order to publish and do this work. So everything that we do is actually analyzed very closely. And, and I think that was a shift for us from storytelling into being a really intervention and research back organization, because one of the biggest challenges in this space is that there's still a lot of gray area around digital well-being. And what I mean by that is that when even mental health in general, um, you know, you can say I'm reaching this amount of kids or this or that, but in order to really get funding, which is what we want, and to be able to like to build your your operating budget to millions of dollars a year, it needs to be rooted in serious science and impact and numbers so that you can show 
that you're really driving an impact and it's not just all qualitative. And so that's really a key focus for me because I want to build an institution and a larger organization that I hope outgrows my own ability to even lead it to make the biggest change possible. And we also want to be able to pave the way for other organizations to use our research research and tools so that the movement itself can receive more funding. Because I'm going to be honest, part of what was so hard is that four years ago, when I was telling people to fund this, they're like, what do you mean is the problem? And then in COVID, once that hit, that was when people started to perk up and we could finally get checks for more than 500 or or $1,000. And we were actually able to start moving the needle. I can kind of tag team and jump in here while we wait for the connectivity for the network um, to get back with Shivani. Um, so with all of that, what what is your overall impact and goal with half the story? Like in a perfect world, what do you want it to look like and what will it embody? So, I, I mean, from a visionary perspective, or I mean, from a visionary perspective, I think we'd like to be the leaders at the intersection of emotional health and tech habits internationally, and not and and really be the leaders in in education as well as community. Um, I think also what we want to be able to do is continue building a coalition and partnerships with LookUp, and to be able to find ways to build a world where nonprofits can work together in the space as opposed against each other. There's actually a ton of competition that I've seen in the traditional mental health nonprofit space. And I think one of the things I love about digital well-being and where we're at in this movement is we have the ability to rewrite those rules because we're stronger in numbers. And I think that's one of the things that I love the most about the team at LookUp is their willingness and ability to bring everyone together in a room so that we can fight these battles together instead of alone, because then it allows us to be the experts at what we do, and then use our collective voices for change. I think the, the second thing as an organization for us is that ideally we'd like to be adopted into schools uh, on a government level. So we're working with different governments, actually <laughs> different pu like public entities to bring our programming in a more widespread way and, and are looking at different ways to fund it. But my goal is to be able to work with the Department of Education and ultimately have this be funded and in, in something that is a requirement. But also, you know, with that comes letting go of a lot of control, which as a founder, sometimes that's very challenging. So that's where we're at. And, and I think it's baby steps. We're still so at the beginning of this. And I think, you know, I just hope that I can continue to stay happy, healthy and motivated uh, in order to really hold this vision and and do it uh, because the world needs it. And we're certainly not at the end of this, we're at the beginning. So those are just a, a few a few goals. I think ideally by 2025, we'd like to work with um, a million students. That would be our vision. And that's sort of what we're going after in a lot of our campaigning. Yeah, that's amazing. And I just kind of want to like encourage that vision and thought too, because from most of the panels that we heard from today, like from the start at 8 a.m. to now, we've heard that schools do not have any kind of programming or educational systems to provide youth with ideas for like, this is technology. This is how you should feel on it. This is how you shouldn't feel on it. And comparison culture, not a real thing. Like um, snubbing someone with your phone, which we call fubbing, like don't do that, you know? So to be able to have something like that in our school systems, I think would really just set us up for even more of a, benefits, um, you know, because I think when both of us were back in school, like you mentioned earlier, like 
the conversations we have now are so different from a few years ago where I'm sure we would have benefited to have this. So uh, really it's taking that the pain part and putting into purpose. So thank you for having that be your goal. I'm so excited to see where that goes and hopefully look up can continue to like push you forward and and see where that can take us. Yes. Uh, yeah, we're all, we're all in it together. And I, I do feel really grateful for the reception and it, it is very hard. Like what people, you know, people would always say, well, why don't you just go to college or why are you trying to do this? It's so hard to work within public education institutions. And the answer is yes, it's hard, but I believe that we can do hard things if we want to and we persevere. So that's sort of uh, what we're after. And I guess for anyone that's watching, if you're you have an institution and you're interested in getting involved, let me know and just reach out on halfthestoryproject.org. Amazing. Now, I know that we did briefly discuss the Global Day of Unplugging in the previous question. Can you just give us a little bit more context about what that day is and yeah. like what what the whole vibe is? Because I know that I've seen a few uh, of like the media little bits or of like everyone just like all together. And had I had the time, I would have been there in New York with y'all like partying and being so away from my uh, device. So can you tell us more a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So next year it will be the first Saturday in August. Uh, so this year it was the sixth and next year it will be the, I think it's, hold on, let me, I'm like, I haven't got, oh, it's the fifth next year. Next year it will be August 5th and you can, everyone can host their own meetups in different cities around the world. We'll be partnering with different creators. It looks like I have drifted away into the clouds. Perfect. I am. I have literally free. drifted away into the clouds. I'm um, going screen free without even knowing it. So, um, yeah, so, so that's it. And if you want to get involved, you want to host a meetup or if you're a creator that wants to host a meetup, that's a big focus for us. So we'll be, partnering with influencers around the world to get people offline and to get them into the real world, to meet them, experience them, share, create, connect, and hopefully keep building this movement together. So that is, uh, that, that's our, our truth. Awesome. Yeah. I kind of hopped in for the tail end of that. Um, but yeah, I think I also wanted to kind of ask you something um, related to half the story and what you guys are working on. Um, and one of it was when I was researching about you guys, I learned that you are recently going to launch programs where students can start clubs or yeah. go and join weekly discussion groups together. And I'd love to hear about the sort of impact that you'd like to create through that. Yeah. So for us, um, our vision at Have the Story is to be able to have a reoccurring program and look at our programming as really the entry point. So working with middle schoolers and high schoolers, we really work with freshmen as they're transitioning into that world. And we look at the student-led clubs and organizations as sort of the, the student heads of policy that are dealing with the issues as it relates to social media. <laughs> yes, Jeffrey is right. And mental health on campus. So we, we look at this as the long legs. Like I, I think this mission and the work that we're doing, it's not a day, it's not a week, it's not a month. It's, it's something that we have to practice and cultivate. And our theory of change is really focused on changing both micro and macro ecosystems, which means, you know, there's a on the state level, but then also the district level and then, you know, all the way down to the student level. And so that's why it is so hard to move this rock and this boulder, because it's not as simple as here's a Band-Aid or, you know, let's hand out this thing and it's going to solve it. It's, it's a big challenge and a big problem. And also big challenges need a lot of money to work. So 
<laughs> that's the other thing. Yeah, awesome. And as someone who's fresh out of high school, I can tell you I love the idea of, you know, having programs integrated within the schools and an opportunity for students to take um, kind of a leadership role and an initiative to hop into this initiative in a different way. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Yeah, um, I think I had one more question, and it was kind of related to um, some of your advocacy efforts and what your thoughts are on a lot of the legislation that's been passing recently. So, so we've actually been very lucky to work with the team at Look Up Live to collaborate on lobbying and most recently um, AB 2408, as well as supporting our amazing bill that was just passed that was really uh led by a lot of the youth that are a part of Look Up Live. And I think here's here's the truth. Tech companies have been operating since 2008 without any sort of guardrails. Putting young kids on technology is like putting them into a car that doesn't have a seatbelt and has never been go has never gone through any safety standard. We have safety standards in place for the foods they eat, the stuffed animals they buy, the planes that they got on, the trains, the cars, but not the place again that these kids are spending a third of their life. So I think we've just scratched the surface and this needs to be with especially the way that America is working. I think it's going to come up. It's going to depend on the state governments cultivating these changes to a point where once the majority of them do, then I'm hopeful that there will be national implementation and change because we shouldn't just be living in a world where just kids in California are protected from privacy or social media and addictive algorithms. We're not going to be able to create the change on a systems level and a global level if we're siloing it to just one place in the world. And privacy is a great jumping off point, but that is like, you know, that's like, that's just, that is the foundation. That's like, you need shoes to, to get outside and walk. Like kids' privacy should be protected. And then on top of that, we need to continue to, to, to monitor the algorithms and the actual infrastructure to ensure that we're building worlds where emotional health is a priority, not an afterthought. Yeah, I, I completely love your emphasis on expanding beyond privacy as well, and how it's important to touch upon a lot of these ideas in a legislative sense that might not directly be related to what traditional tech regulation has really been about, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and um, there is a question in the chat for me right now. I think. Yeah. Um, Do you want me to go ahead and ask you the question? We're gonna we're changing. We're actually flipping the mic on you. You're gonna <laughs> answer a question. <laughs> cool. So, Shivani, since today is all about propelling the youth voice forward at our Y for Y summit, how do you think about the social platform you host here, Gen Z's Digital Decalogue, as a leader in this conversation? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And Kate, I think you could also speak to this. I mean, I think Gen Z's digital decalogue is Kate and I's baby, if you want to call it that. It is something that we have been working on together for a very long time. Um, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. But I think um, for me, I think it's important to have conversations with people beyond the, the limited scope of maybe some discussions that we might have on an individual level, right? I mean, before this, a lot of this was, there was a niche group of people that were kind of getting together and talking about this. And the idea of holding something like the Why for Why Summit and having this podcast is a way for us to take those ideas, kind of consolidate them together from various different sides and perspectives and kind of put it out there for people to get exposed to them. 
Um, one thing I love about Gen Z's digital decalogue is how we you know, touch upon a wide variety of topics, all the way from big tech regulation to mental health. And it's kind of because it's such a vast you know, industry, it's a vast field. And touching upon all of these different ideas and allowing people to experience that in through direct communication with some of these leaders that we have conversations with is just a great way to expand the exposure of it. Um, and Kate, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think you actually covered it. I think it really is just about having a really natural conversation that enlightens the space and also is youth led because I, for me, I know that when I hear someone saying like, you know, I, I'm doing this thing, but I'm struggling here with my mental health and all of that, like that makes me feel seen hearing another conversation that I'm not really connected to these folks, but I am now connected because we're going through the same things. So, and I really think Shivani, you do an excellent job at bringing in those voices and giving them that space and then letting, letting them just kind of be themselves. So really, I think, I think you, like you're doing it. <laughs> and Lars, you're you. doing it's it. Definitely, it's definitely a team effort here. It but really yeah, thank you. And it, it, it does go back to Larissa's point of like, we will do this together. Like this is the only way we're actually going to create the change is by walking and holding hands together. So thank you so much, both of you for being here, sharing your insights and for recording this podcast. I am so, so happy to have been at, like part of this, part of the whole summit. Um, again, Larissa, thank you so much for being here with us, sharing your story. Shivani, thank you for being our incredible host. And thank you to all of our, um, everyone in the audience listening and everything. We're so glad that you're here. We couldn't have done this without you. So thank you so much. And we will thank see you. Thank you so much. Cheers to the future. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. <laughs> oh, also, if there's anyone still on here and if it's okay, my be real went off five minutes ago and I think this would be a hilarious be real to do right now if that's okay with you guys you want to go for it yeah go ahead so I just got to take a picture of you guys and I think it's interesting because we just talked about this and my goal is to be real with this one and actually do it when it goes off yeah so here we go okay awesome (laughs) I love it I I posted on um Social on Instagram last night saying I post on Instagram like it's be real um, because I just I'm like I don't even care like I'm I feel like I'm be real I'm more concerned with like what I look like than just like taking a photo of my feet and my pug on Instagram like it's very confusing but say <laughs> lobby we've made it happy weekend everyone can go celebrate this amazing event and get outside and enjoy some screen free time yeah thank you so much awesome. have a great weekend. Yes. Bye.